there is no perfect time. There is no perfect set of circumstances. Uh, you just have to keep moving. Just take steps, and even if you don't know, don't worry, because nobody knows. No, none of us know. <laughs> um, but if you keep taking steps and keep moving, things will start to fall in place. People will start to come into your life that are helpful. Opportunities will open up. But I think a lot of entrepreneurs. Um, I know for me, for a long time, I just kept planning, kept planning and waiting for the right time, the perfect time for all the stars to align that now's the time to go. And um, it really was my husband that kind of told me that, like, it's there's no perfect time. Like, just jump in, move it. I'm tired of watching. Go. Welcome to CEO School. We're your hosts, Sunira Madani and Shannon Monson, and we believe you deserve to have it all. Less than 2% of female founders ever break 1 million in revenue, and we're on a mission to change that. Each week, you'll learn from incredible mentors who've made it to the 2% Club, as well as women well on their way, sharing how they've defied the odds so you can do it too. You're a real business now, and class is officially in session. This episode is sponsored by The Club, a quarterly box and digital monthly community to help you level up in leadership and life. Learn more today at join.theceoschool.co slash the club. Welcome to the podcast today. I'm so excited. We have an incredible guest for you. Kia Tomlin is here with me. Kia is a designer and has a phenomenal American brand apparel line that she creates in her own workshop from start to finish, from the design process to manufacturing and styling and trunk shows that she's pivoted through the pandemic. And she is also the wife of Steelers head coach, Mike Tomlin. So I'm really excited to have her on the podcast today. Kia, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. I love your, your podcast. So um, it's, it's, I'm excited to talk to you. We're excited to hear more. I want to start with kind of your entrepreneurial story Mm -hmm. and how you got into being a clothing designer. Sounds like it wasn't your plan from day one. I know you went to school, you were pre-med, the plan was to be a surgeon. So how do you, how does one go from planning to be a doctor to owning your own fashion line? Yeah. How did that happen? Yeah. So I never really dreamed of being an entrepreneur. And I actually think at that age in that time period, it wasn't like a big thing that was really talked about. Um, but I got into sewing design young, really just to solve my own problems. I was super, super tiny um, to really to where the point where the doctors were a little concerned about how, you know, if I was ever going to grow. Um, but I wanted to fit in with what the other kids were wearing. And um, in order to do that, but back then they didn't have the cool kids clothing stores um, like they have now. You know, you're really just shopping at, you know, on our budget, you're you know, shopping at Sears and Pennies, that kind of thing. And so I asked my mother for a sewing machine at age 10 or 11, and no one in my family sewed. Nobody um, was remotely interested in fashion, but my, I got a sewing machine for Christmas and my mother just kind of dusted off her eighth grade home ec skills and we read the manual together and learned how to operate the, the sewing machine. And I just took off from there. By middle school, I was making all my own clothes. By um, high school, I was doing prom dresses for friends and family. And then all through college, I sewed and designed for my college roommate, um, sorority step contests, um, some of the um, sorority, I guess, initiation, where they, where they need the little white dresses, did those. 
um, my, my gymnastics coach was pregnant one year. I did all her maternity wear and, and actually during final exams, my senior year, I made all of my bridesmaids dresses to get married two weeks after <laughs> graduation. So, um, but that was still never, it was just a hobby to me all that time. I never grew up around fashion, so I didn't know what all you could do in fashion. And so I just grew up wanting to be a doctor and, and really probably less about a love of medicine and more just about like, well, what are the things, my limited knowledge of what you could be, you know, I kind of like, okay, doctor, lawyer, teacher, policewoman, um, doctor, you know, when you say doctor, people are impressed, makes a lot of money. And probably most comforting was just knowing that there was a set path to becoming a doctor. It wasn't like a make your own way kind of thing. You know, you go to four, you know, you go to your undergraduate, you take the MCAT, then you apply to med school and you do your, you know, residency. You know, there's a definite path that um, was assigned and that was to me comfortable to have the steps of what to do next. Yeah, like a, a sense of security mm-hmm. in some way. We've talked about this before on the show, but entrepreneurship didn't used to be sexy. Yeah. <laughs> like this is a this is new for us to have social media and so much access into entrepreneurship and what that looks like. Um, when did it go from this is a fun hobby? I mm-hmm. so bridesmaids dresses and prom dresses to actually, okay, this is a business. I'm mm-hmm. gonna go all in and I'm gonna really try and take this to the next level. Okay, yeah. Um so I got married right after college, two weeks after graduating. And my husband was already in his path. He graduated a year before me. So he was already on kind of his coaching path, which wasn't a big deal. Cause I, I mean, it's very young. I didn't realize he wanted to coach. I thought he was just getting a, um, a master's degree through graduate coaching and that eventually he'd get a real job and I'd go to med school and, you know, we'd have a normal life and family. Um, but as I, realized that he learned that he wanted to coach football still no big deal like okay you're a high school football coach maybe you teach some class and gym classes or something and you know I go be a doctor and we have a normal life Um, but when I realized he wanted to be a college coach and looking around at the uh, the lives of the other coaches and their families and getting an understanding of the lack of job security and the amount of movement I think my my first year of marriage I met a woman who at a coaching convention who had been married 18 years and had moved 18 times. And so, wow. so I started to realize like, huh, how do you, how do I mesh med school, even applying to med school, much less staying in one med school? How do I mesh that with the career that he wants to do? And since, you know, as I said before, I wasn't like really so tied to being a doctor. I was kind of like, well, let me just, you know, put this on the back burner and think about it. And next year when the MCAT rolls around, if, um, if, if this is what I want to do, I'll take it then. And um, I just never did. But then we, with his job, we moved around a couple places. I worked like random jobs, coaching gymnastics, substitute teacher. But I, all along the way, I always sewed and designed. And we were living at one point, living in Jonesboro, Arkansas, which is really it's a big tiny. town. Yeah. I'm from Northern New Jersey. Like I'm... <laughs> I'm like, you know, I'm right outside New York City. So that was quite a stretch for me. Um, had a, I had a hard time finding work, but I was still sewing and designing. And I got the idea that I would move back home and take a one-year course at FIT. And, that, and that's kind of where I had the decision, like, I'm going to, that's what I want to do. And my husband said to me, and actually, I think before this, as I was kind of flailing around, not doing much I had gone home and was talking to my 
like my good friend's mother and telling her that they had known me that to always want to go to med school. And she, when I, you know, kind of said, I'm, I'm not going to go anymore. And um, she was kind of like, well, what are you going to do? And I was like, I don't know. And her piece of advice was um, figure out, you know, find what you love to do and figure out a way to make money doing it. And so I kind of looked around and was like, well, sewing and designing has always been that thing that just has followed me throughout my life. That must be my path. And so I you know, went back to Arkansas and told my husband that, you know what, I'm going to move home to New Jersey just for a year and take a, a one-year program at FIT in New York to study fashion design. And then, you know, you know I'll, I'll come back and, you know, we'll continue on with life. And he just, like, totally panicked because he knew that if I left Arkansas, I was not coming back. <laughs> well, yep, I could see that. Yeah, he was probably right. Um, but the, you know, the, the Lord must have, you know, heard our cry and um, he got a job coaching football at the University of Cincinnati and they have a fashion design program there. Oh, that's and, great. So you were able to actually stay together. Um, that's, I mean, like physically in the same location. Yeah. What's even better about that is that um, since he worked for the university, I could attend for free. That's phenomenal. I feel like when things like that happen, it really is the universe telling you. I know we talk a lot about like work-life balance and this is something, your story, I can relate to a lot because we always say there's no such thing as work-life balance. It's work-life integration. And so, you know, to move forward with your career with just not thinking at all about what your partner is doing doesn't make any sense because that does greatly affect your life. You know, if you're moving around for different jobs, I know I've had similar experiences. My husband's actually an OBGYN resident and it wouldn't make a lot of sense for me to have certain other jobs too, but there is a way that you can both build a life together that still you're able to do the things that you love and are passionate about and find a way to make money for it. So I think that's so beautiful that you were able to say, okay, you know, I'm not like dead set on being a doctor, but my end goal is to, I'm assuming to help people to use my creativity. How can I find a way to do that in a way that, you know, really fits into the family life that I want to create too. Cause that's, I, very important. I know you've talked a lot about um, something I loved that you've talked about on your Instagram is creating a family legacy. And I know you just had a family crest made and yes. I've seen all of, as a former athlete, all the Tomlinisms, like the standard is the standard and make no excuses. So I would love to hear how you've created, you know, a mission centric family and mission centric companies and really what that's been like for you. Mission-centric family, I've never really thought of it like that, I guess, but I'll have to say that um, my husband really is the driving force behind that, and, you know, we both come from broken homes, you know, not, not affluent at all, and so really just trying to establish for our kids and their kids just a, a legacy and a, a story and um, a pride. For example, I remember growing up and we were one of the few African-American families in our town. I think there were three families. And I remember kids asking like, well, what are you? And I would say, well, I'm black. And they'd be like, no, no, no. Like, like, what are you? Like, you know, I'm German, I'm Irish, I'm Italian. What are you? And I would still say, well, I'm black. <laughs> um, that as um, African-Americans, we don't really have anything beyond um, our existence, um, our ancestors' existence in slavery. And so even in developing a family crest and taking it back to, you know, using the name Tomlin, 
that name most likely is going to stem from, you know, a slave master. And so really we wanted to kind of just reclaim that our own history and our, and kind of just give us a, give, you know, our kids and their kids a clean slate starting now. And, and this is our legacy and this is what we stand for. And it doesn't have to be, we don't have to be defined by um, that history. Um, You know, and, and not that, not that we're embarrassed about that history, actually, we're, you know, it's sad and hard to, and hurtful, but we're also take a lot of pride in that history and that what strong people and what store amazing stories um, have grown out of that to create um, the people that we are and where we are today. So, um, yeah, I guess I don't know if that answered the question, but <laughs> no, that's so beautiful. I mean, I, I got chills listening to that. I know I feel like family values is something that I grew up with. You know, we're so proud. My maiden name is a Brooks and it was really, you know, drilled into us that we're so proud to be Brooks girls. And I'd never thought about it from that perspective, you know, not being able to trace that lineage and that genealogy and, you know, uh, so much of that was was taken from you and so beautiful for you to decide this is who we are as Tomlins. Here's what we stand for. And to give your kids that sense of security and self, I think that's so beautiful. And I feel like I'm proud watching watching your family on Instagram and you guys wearing your matching shirts. I'm like, I want to be a part of this family. This looks like so much fun. Count me in. Um, something I would love to talk about as well while we're kind of on this topic of values, something you've done really phenomenally well in your business, I think, from the outside looking in is you've supported a lot of causes with your business from, you know, breast cancer, violence against women, racial injustice. I mean, there's a lot of ways that you've given back financially. You've been an activist with your voice. How can we as entrepreneurs use our business as a vehicle for the change we want to see in the world? Um, I, you know, I think, I think a lot about that because I, in my dreams, when I, you know, make it big and have lots of money to throw around to causes, um, you know, have dreams of what, I, what I'll do with that. But um, right now, as most startups, we don't have that type of, um, that level of income to be that philanthropic. But I think there's always ways, there's always ways we can contribute to um, underserved communities, um, even if it's not giving a portion of the proceeds, but giving a voice, giving a platform, giving a job, like who do I hire to do my photography or my cleaning at my job? Um, Just ways to uplift communities in need that I think are, are valuable. Yeah, I think something that a lot of us feel, especially in the startup stages, is I don't have the money, so like I can't help. Who am I? You know, I'm not a big company. I can't throw dollars at these problems. But I feel like at the end of the day, a lot of the companies that really do drive change, it's through those small decisions. Like I've noticed in your um, photography for your fashion line, there's a lot of diversity. There's LGBTQ models and and bigger women and smaller women and black women. And there's all of this, you know, it's a good representation of the world around us, which mm-hmm. is not true for a lot of fashion brands. And I think that's, you know, those little <laughs> things can make such a big difference. Just on your Instagram posts, I was seeing all of the posts that you did about about, you know, I know you don't donate a percentage of profits and you're, you know, partnering with other um, charities and causes. And I think this is something that it's so normal to feel like, oh, well, I can't yet because I haven't made it. I'm not big enough. And I, I was very inspired by everything that you were doing. So 
Thank you very much. All right. I want to hear, let's talk about COVID. Okay. <laughs> okay. So take me back to the moment that you started to hear like these little whispers of there's this virus coming and, you know, maybe your coach, your coach, your husband's coming home saying, you know, maybe practice is going to be canceled for a couple of weeks. Like what was going through your head and specifically around your business in those early stages? Really, I wasn't thinking too much about it until they issued the shelter in place, um, which was in Pennsylvania, it was March. Yeah. And it was right at the time that we were getting ready to release our spring collection. So we were, had anticipated this, you know, big, you know, launch of our collection and all these sales and all this excitement. And um, fortunately, we were just about, since we make um, everything here in-house right now, um, we were pretty much close to being done with producing everything. Um, we did still have some stuff that was not completed yet, but I... Once we went into shelter in place, I kind of just told my, I gathered my team, very small team, um, gathered my team and just said, like, I, I don't know where this is going. I'm committed to paying, you know, to continuing to pay you. Um, this is how much money I have in the account and, you know, I'll yeah. pay you till it comes out. Um, but I think that, I told them, I think that if we, we have a lot of assets, um, and that if we keep an open mind and flexible, I just felt this like really sense of confidence that we could um, not only survive it, but come out on top um, compared to other brands that maybe wouldn't be able to survive. And by that, I say that because we make everything in house. We've got, a, you know, a storage garage full of fabric. We've got talented people. Um, we're creative. We don't get anything from overseas. All of our supplies are made in America. Whereas at that point, um, the other countries were much harder hit than you are. So um, logistically getting supplies from say China or something would right. be very hard for a fashion brand. So I just said, I, I think that we're, you know, as long as we stay positive and open-minded and flexible that we can come out on top. I don't know what it's going to look like, but like, I think we can do it. And so we, everyone went home and we laid around for about a week <laughs> until I got word that, in, I think it was in Illinois, there was a hospital system that was calling for home sewers to pitch in and start making cloth masks that they had, a, they had a shortage. Okay. I want to go into this more, but before you talk, cause I'm really excited about what's coming next. Before you talk about this, there's a couple of things you said that really stood out to me. One is that you felt competent. Like that's something mm -hmm. that it's a um, affirmation that we use a lot. I am competent. And so to have this massive pandemic hit, all of, all of us as business owners are over here going, what is going to happen? And for you to say, I'm competent. I'm going to figure this out. And then something else that you said, you, you brought your team in and you said, hey, you were very transparent to, to go to your employees and say, this is how much money's in the account and I'm going to pay you until it runs out. That is what leadership looks like. Yeah. I mean, that <laughs> is beautiful that you made that commitment to them. And also we're just so fully transparent that, you know, we're in this together. So I just want to acknowledge you for that before we move on. So you're competent, you're being a transparent leader. And then tell us about the masks. How you how did you get into making masks? What did this look like? All right. Well, thank you for saying it that way because <laughs> I don't know that I was feeling I think I was telling, you know, being full disclosure almost in like a panic, like, okay, you see how much money's in here. So you'll know when you need 
to start figuring out how to support yourself. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we were for sure in a panic. I mean, I, our business went to zero overnight, you know, and I, we were like, well, what's going to happen? Are we starting a new company? I had a lot of friends in similar positions. I have a sister who works in um, supply chain. She works for Newell Rubbermaid and mm-hmm. most of their supplies come from China. And she was talking about, you know, we're not going to get stuff for the next three months. So I think it's okay to have been in a panic state, but what yeah. you did with that was, you know, okay, Let's take an assessment of what we've got. Okay, we don't have a supply chain problem. We have everything we need right here. What, how can we take this and really ensure that we survive this period? And you didn't just survive. You doubled the business during the pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. what made you decide to start making masks? Can you map out for us the things that you did that you think were so instrumental in helping you have business growth during this season? Okay. So... Um, after realizing that there was a need for the cloth masks, I, um, you know, talked to my team to see like, Hey, we're all just sitting home. Everybody's got a sewing machine. Everybody's got scrap fabric. You know, I was, you know, selfishly thinking, well, I'm paying them anyways. They might as well do. So we might as well give back in some way. Um, so I asked them and they were like so excited to be able to help, um, you know, in this time of crisis. So we, um, you know, we all jumped in and I called around, um, to see, I didn't want to just make masks because in Pennsylvania, we hadn't really had that, had that need yet that we'd seen. And so I was like, well, let me call around and see if anybody even wants these. Do they need these? And I was connected with um, Allegheny Health Network, which is a hospital system here in town. And I um, spoke to a person over there and they were kind of like, hmm, I don't, you know, we don't really, we're doing okay right now, but I guess it can't hurt. And I think they were also thinking like, oh, what's, you know, it's PR, whatever. Sure. You want to make masks. And, um, and Initially, we actually like worked together for about a, we spent about a week trying to figure out how to make N95s because that was like the yeah. big rate. The need. N95. Mm-hmm. Um, before we kind of gave up and we're like, okay, there's no way to efficiently make an N95 like right now. You know, let's just do the standard cloth masks that are like on the CDC website. And so I had initially committed to um, well, 400 masks a week. That would be, you know, every each person on my team sewing a hundred a week, which is, I mean, that's just a couple hours, you know, a day. Okay. Or yeah. And once we started doing that and word got out, then it just like spiraled into this huge demand. And we were getting calls from, you know, emails from across the country because there were at that time there were no masks to be found. No one was making them because everyone, you know, most people get them overseas. So it was either right. So we're sewing them or you just couldn't get them. And so we ended up, um, commit, you know, ended up sewing probably over 500 masks a day. So we were each sewing over a hundred masks a day, which is a lot of masks. Um, and we did that for, I mean, months and we, you know, just donating them. Um, wow. we would, after we ran through the fabrics in our own homes and you know what was at the workshop then we um we would take our little joanne fabric store coupons for 40 percent off yeah. and buy up fabric there and in doing that we still were really thoughtful about what fabric we were using like so fabrics we had at home that's all stuff that we picked that we liked at some point right and then when we would go to joanne's and buy fabric we were still picking stuff that we liked we didn't just take anything um i mean we even paid more you know we even got the higher end stuff just because it had like a nice print on it yeah but um, People at Allegheny Health Network noticed that and they loved our selection of prints and said that they were so cheerful and people, were, hospital workers really enjoying it. And so their parent company, Highmark Health, 
approached me about designing the prints for masks um, for their, they were starting a million mask initiative that they were going to give away a million masks. And, and they, are, they cover Delaware, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia. And I, and I would be paid <laughs> to design the, the prints for the mask. So I um, jumped on it and said, absolutely. I had no idea how to design a print. I had never designed a print before. I don't work in prints. Do um, now. Yes, I do now. <laughs> I think the pandemic, we all were like, yes, I can do that. Yes. that I can yes. learn how to do that. Yeah, yes, I do that I, now. I, Very so cool. I just thought my team is going to need to eat. So yeah. I need to make money and I will figure out how to make a print. And so, yeah, we went on from there. So did most of the, has most of your business during the pandemic been masks? Are you still doing clothes? What are the, you know, we're essentially, there's still a lot longer to go on this. You know, we're looking at the end is in sight, but we've still got a long way to go with the pandemic. What advice would you give to a brick and mortar store owner or particularly in the fashion industry right now? to pivot during this time, you know, would you say, Hey, go start selling masks, maybe not a year later. What has been, what have been the things that have really kept you not just afloat, but doubling the business? Um, well, well, definitely the designing the print masks. And then we were also paid to manufacture masks for Highmark as well. So we um, jumped into that, but we did actually still sell clothes even early on when our, when we launched the spring collection, I kind of thought like, oh, geez, nobody's going to be buying clothes. No one's going anywhere. Let's just immediately mark things 25% off, which we never do. We very rarely have, have sales. And, um, and, it, and it worked. People were buying the clothes. There was a, I guess our target demographic are probably women who were retired um, anyways or um, had the, have the flexibility to work from home. So right. I think a lot of our clientele was not um, – facing unemployment. And so they continued to shop. So we did still sell that. And then come fall, we rolled out some new styles for our game day collection. I think a lot of, since the NFL was kind of shut down or yeah. they were, you know, couldn't go to the games, couldn't go to the bars, people were looking for ways to kind of keep the spirit alive at home. And so our game day collection came through pretty clutch. And so that, that was helpful as well. I think that's so smart. I, you know, I'm listening and there's so many like little trends that you played into. I noticed at the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of people marked down their sizes to create urgency for people to shop. You know, we're all sitting at home bored with nothing to do. We want, you know, new t-shirts and a lot of, I've seen your, your game day onesie, like you sell a lot of comfortable clothes, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like dresses for going to a gala. Uh, I'm sure you could make those as well, but a lot of the, the stuff that you make is, is comfortable. And so really leaning into those trends and thinking through the psychology of, okay, where are these people right now? They're sitting at home watching their favorite team play without an audience and they still want to support it. How can we you know, be a part of that? So I think you've done a lot of really smart things. I love that. Um, okay. Next, I would love to hear about what do you feel like your best, we always ask, what's your best advice? to a new entrepreneur starting out. You've been doing this for several years. You've yeah. made it through a pandemic. You're continuing to grow the business. What advice would you give to someone to, that's really helped you get to where you are today? Uh, there is no perfect time. There is no perfect set of circumstances. Uh, you just have to keep moving. Just take steps. And even if you don't know, don't worry, because nobody knows. No, none of us know. <laughs> um, but if you keep taking steps and keep moving, Things will start to fall in place. People will start to come into your life that are helpful. Opportunities will open up. But I think a lot of 
um, entrepreneurs. I know for me, for a long time, I just kept planning, kept planning and waiting for the right time, the perfect time for all the stars to align that now's the time to go. And um, it really was my husband that kind of told me that like, it's, there's no perfect time. Like just jump in, move it. I'm tired of watching. Go. (laughs) We all need a good push sometimes. Something you said that really resonated with me is just that nobody knows what they're doing. And I couldn't agree more. I still feel like the big art business gets kind of thinking, oh, there will get to a point where I feel fully competent in this area. I know how to do everything, but I think realizing that we are just kind of taking what's thrown at us. And even if you get as a hundred percent prepared, right? There's still, you, no one could have predicted your business to go through a pandemic this year, right? There's so many things that we can't like plan for anyway, that I love that advice to just jump in, get started. And I love that your husband was the one that said, I'm not, I'm not listening to you talk about it anymore. Let's go, let's do this. So I, I selfishly want to hear the answer to this question. I'm also married to someone with a very busy schedule. I would love to hear how you guys manage both being, ambitious, successful, you know, you're an entrepreneur, he's a head coach in the NFL. What is that like for you? And maybe what tips would you give for other entrepreneurs in a similar situation? Uh, I, would, I think that we're fairly unconventional um, in that he's always, I've only, he's always worked and he's always worked a lot of hours from the time we were married, you know, in college, we were both college athletes. So we both had our own um, kind of schedules and um, and I, individual lives. And then when we got married, he was already coaching. He, as a graduate assistant, you really work probably 20 hours a day, every day. And so I always established my life as kind of separate, not going to say separate, but I, I had to, I had to entertain myself yeah. and not rely on him or count on him. Now and there were, you know, great things about that because when someone's gone 20 hours a Go day, independence. Yeah. <laughs> like he's eating at work. He's, you know, he's half time sleeping at work. He's, you know, there's a, we had a, there's a funny story. Like the second we'd been married for maybe two, three weeks living in um, Memphis, Tennessee. And I went to go do laundry and I, you know, was looking, you know, I pulled out all my dirty clothes and I was looking for his dirty clothes. And I'm like, there's no dirty clothes. There's no towels. There's no like dirty underwear. Like where, like where is clothes? And where I started you? Really out. Like, is he like turning his underwear inside out? Like it was like <laughs> newlywed horror stories. <laughs> and, and so I, the funny thing is I didn't say anything to him. I didn't ask him. I just kind of like watched. I just, you know, spent like a yeah. week watching what was going on. And so he would work all day, come home from work, probably like 1130 at night, midnight. He'd, I'd already be in bed. He'd take his clothes off on the side of the bed, go to sleep, get back up the next morning at like four, put the like step right into those same exact clothes, put them back on and, and go to work. And so I finally like asked him like, you know, I'm like totally like grossed out thinking like, what did I marry? And I finally asked him about it. You should have it. asked before we come, before we <laughs> seal the deal. Yeah. And, um, and he, he laughed and he was like, everything I do, I do at work. So he showers like, three times a day because they have, they have practice there. He puts all his clothes in with the, you know, the team apparel. So it get laundry gets done there. The clothes that he puts on, that he wears home really just came out of the wash after practice. And so they're clean. That <laughs> is I, gold. That's whole, I'm, I'm laughing so hard because it makes perfect sense as a, you know, I played sports competitively. You have your laundry done. Why would he ask you yeah. to do it when it can be done at 
at the school in the locker room. It makes perfect sense. But really that kind of that feeling of living like parallel lives, like we don't even do our laundry together. What's going on? And I can definitely, definitely relate to that. My husband does the same thing. He sleeps at work. He brings different scrubs. So I can definitely relate. What have you done to ensure that you guys do stay connected when I'm sure there've been a lot of times, because I definitely feel this where you're just kind of seeing each other in passing. Yeah, it's, it, it gets, it's definitely hard during football season. And so after football season, during football season, I kind of just do my, you know, do my own thing, stay yeah. out of the way, you know, don't make demands. Um, I'm just kind of used to that running, you know, I run the show, I run the kids. Um, that's, you know, I'm in control, I'm the boss. And he's just kind of, you know, watching from the sidelines. And then as soon as football season's over, usually we take um, a trip together, just the two of us and kind of, you know, reconnect and, yeah. um, and then the off season, he still works a lot during the off season, but it's, um, you know, it's more normal. Like maybe he's home for dinner or he'll eat dinner after us, but we we'll watch TV together, that kind of thing. So we at least have like a cycle. It's not that intense, you know, 365 days of the year, but there definitely is, I think the hardest part for me with being married to him was really maintaining, establishing and maintaining my own sense of identity, which really is like one of the reasons I started my business. Um, is, but like when we first moved to Pittsburgh and he became head coach and that was the first time that he, like before then nobody like knew or cared who he was when you're like an assistant, you're, you know, right. you're not really in the spotlight. But then moving to Pittsburgh and being the face of the organization and, and especially Pittsburgh being such a sports town, it was really, um, it was, it was a tough adjustment for me because out in, when we're out in public, um, I feel invisible and, um, probably even like even more than invisible, but you know, people would clamor to him and shove cameras in my face to be like, here, take my picture. So I'm like the camera, you know, pushed to the side. I'm the camera woman now, um, constantly, you know, interrupting, you know, couldn't go out to eat that kind of stuff. Sexy young girls lifting their shirts up, wanting him to sign their boobs, like in, like as I'm standing there kind of stuff. So that, that was hard. And then also in our home, just having, just being like a maid, like doing everything to the point where, like no one appreciates that, you know, really feeling unappreciated at home. And um, probably a year, maybe our second year here, I really was miserable, like, like bitchy miserable. And I was making everyone else around me miserable. And my husband couldn't help, like he didn't know how to help me. And and it really was, I had to figure out how to make myself happy. Um, No one else could do it for me. And so that's when I, you know, realized like I I need to start, I need to start my own thing. And um, so that's what I did. Thank you for sharing that. Like so vulnerably, it really resonates with me. I think as women, we are often kind of pushed to the side. I can definitely relate to someone, you know, asking me what my husband does for a living and then, you know, just kind of assuming that I'm the stay-at-home mom. And what this, what you just described is a whole nother level. <laughs> so I've never had anybody ask to uh, sign. I've never had my husband ask to sign anyone else's boobs. Although I don't know, maybe I'll ask, <laughs> I'll ask later. He is an OBGYN, so who knows? Um, but I think having that, I read in an interview, you're talking about your business, helping you maintain that identity outside of wife and mother. Mm -hmm. And so often we have these labels of, you know, I'm a mom, I'm a a wife, I'm a daughter. It's hard to really carve out 
this individual, you know, who am I as a person? And I definitely feel that business has helped me to nurture that that creativity and funnel that. So how has starting and growing the business really helped you to maintain your own identity as an incredible, talented woman and not someone's wife? Uh, It's, it's been, it's been wonderful to be able to just like own it and own my own decisions and, really steer my own direction. But what's one of the things that I have really noticed um, over the years of doing this is that other women start to pick up on that need for identity. And, and I say that in that when, like if someone introduced me and you did it as well, you said, this is Kia Tomlin and she's a designer, blah, 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 blah. Oh, and she happens to be married too. Whereas before it was always like, this is Kia Tomlin, or this is Mike Tomlin's wife, Kia. And mm-hmm. so um, I like to think that maybe, you know, me kind of doing what I do and being vocal about, you know, needing my own identity, that it kind of registers with people and they think about things like that, like, oh, you're right, I did write Mr. and Mrs. Mike Tomlin and mail it to your work. <laughs> Yeah. And I think there's a lot of women who can relate to this, especially I think during the pandemic, you know, women are bearing a huge brunt of the responsibility. You know, we're all working from home and for the most part, from what I've seen from friends I've talked to and the women are doing the virtual school and they're taking on the extra, the extra chores. And I think it's really easy right now, especially to feel undervalued, underappreciated. Who am I other than, you know, somebody's laundry person. I think that's why it's so important for us to stand our ground and take back that identity because no one's going to do that for you. No one's going to, you know, create that. So if you have a dream and there's these things you want to go after, I think it's really easy to always say, Oh, well, you know, I'm busy right now during doing virtual school with my kids or, Oh, my husband's job is so busy. He has so much going on and COVID's making it harder. Now's not my turn. And that's something I hear a lot of women say. And I think hearing you repeat this back, it is so important that we take care of ourselves and our own identity first. So thank you for sharing that with us. Um, Before we wrap up today, I would love to hear, um, first of all, anything that you're like special promoting right now, uh, any like clothes that you'd like us to go check out in the line. Um, Also, where can we find you on Instagram? Where do you hang out? Uh, What's the best place for listeners to come over and learn more and follow along? Okay. So um, you can find us at our website, kiatomlin.us. And right now we are um, selling our winter collection, which is just comfy, cozy. Um, You can still dress it up, dress it down. A lot more casual stuff than we normally do. And um, we're pretty active on Instagram and Facebook. And... uh, well, first of all, I'm obsessed with your game day onesie. I don't know if I told you this already, but the, oh, no. <laughs> the pockets, I, I don't even watch game days. I'm, gonna, I'm not a huge sports fan right now, um, but I'm going to order myself a what game day onesie. It's the cutest, like black, comfortable. I loved all of your pieces. I think they're phenomenal. And I, I think it's really cool that everything is made in-house and it isn't, we didn't even talk about like fast fashion and all of that, but for you to really push back so far against that and say, hey, we're going to take time and care to create each each piece from start to finish the whole process. Um, so would definitely 10 out of 10 recommend. I'm excited to go shop your website. So again, it's kiatomlin.us, correct? Correct. Okay, we'll put that in the show notes. And what is your Instagram handle so everyone can follow along? It's kiatomlin. Okay, 
Perfect. Go follow Kia Talman on Instagram. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It was so fun chatting with you and I'm really excited for everything that's next for you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. We want to invite you to follow CEO School on Instagram for show notes, inspiration, and exclusive behind the scenes you won't find anywhere else. We also have an absolutely incredible free resource for you. It's the seven lessons we learned building seven and eight figure businesses. These are complete game changers and we want to give it to you completely free. All you have to do is leave a review of the podcast while you love listening, screenshot the review and email it to hello at ceoschoolpodcast.com and we'll send it your way. See you in the next class.